Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, a preview of Wednesday's Be Heard Town Hall, Who's War on Drugs? A Brooklyn-based writer born in Israel reacts to last week's events in Jerusalem and Gaza, and a queer Muslim talks about identity in the context of Ramadan. Hi, and welcome to the show. I'm Ashley Ford, and I'm joined by BRIC's Editorial Director of Public Affairs Programming, Megan Donis, because she's going to give us a quick preview of the Be Heard Town Hall coming up tomorrow night here at Brick House. Hello, Megan. Ashley. I'm so glad you're here. I have been waiting for this. This is really the best day of my life. Me too. You want to talk about drugs? I do. Talk to me about why this town hall topic now. Right. What are the gaps in the conversation that Be Heard is going to fill? You know, it's interesting. This is a topic that we have had planned to do for years. Mm -hmm. We planned it for this month, and in the last couple of weeks, the headlines have gone crazy. New York has approved its first five safe injection sites. Mm -hmm. The DA in Brooklyn and the DA in Manhattan have announced that they're going to decline prosecuting for low-level marijuana offenses to address a lot of the racial, the racist policing that has come around the war on drugs. We have Cynthia Nixon campaigning for marijuana legalization and pushing Cuomo. So it's something that we have covered for the last 15 years. Mm-hmm. And it's exciting because it's really timely right now. And we have a lot of accountable officials who are going to be there who have made these very forward-facing media promises. Mm-hmm. And now we get the chance to have them in our space with our community members to really challenge them to see how we're going to chart a path forward that actually upholds these policies, right? Absolutely. It's a big cultural conversation, and you guys are making room for it right here at Brick House. Who are you most excited to hear from at this town hall? Two people. Mm. Cassandra Frederick from Drug Policy Alliance Mm -hmm. is an absolute firecracker of a human being. I could talk to her all day. Mm -hmm. She has spent years and years working in in progressive drug policy. She just got back from Portugal, which is the model for ending the war on drugs internationally. She has worked on safe injection sites with the Ithaca mayor, which is the first mayor Mm -hmm. in New York State to propose actually having safe injection sites. She's worked with communities for police reform. Some of the stigma has come away from marijuana a little bit, Mm -hmm. and she's envisioning a future where other drugs become destigmatized. She's just really cool, and she's a visionary. So I'm looking forward to hearing from her. I'm really looking forward to having the Brooklyn DA Mm -hmm. on this panel. That office has had, really has had years under Ken Thompson of progressive drug policies, but They have been unable to, you know, arrest rates in communities of color have actually increased since those drug policies of non-prosecution were brought up. So I'm excited for him to actually be able to talk to our community and for our community to have someone truly accountable who can make change. And all the thinkers are always great. But he'll be right there to hear their comments and to hear their questions. I think that's going to be amazing. Do you want to give a shout out to any partners? Yes. um, Drug Policy Alliance. Mm -hmm. They're amazing. In this TV studio, the night of the town hall, they are having a public art safe injection mock-up site. Mm-hmm. So it's an, an actual model that, that models what these safe injection sites will look like and how you right. will use them. So they're amazing, and they've just, they're, they've just been incredible editorial partners mm-hmm. and also just kind of trying to create this holistic experience around how we look at less criminalization of drugs and more mm-hmm. public health. 
Um, and then the Marshall Project, which is always a great partner. Megan, thank you so much for talking about this and for being here with us today. Good luck with everything on Wednesday. Thank you. It's going to be it's gonna something. Be it's going to be something lit. Else. It's going to be lit. I was going to say that, but I'm glad you did. Lit. Lit. Over the next month or two, we're going to engage in a complicated conversation, the one surrounding Israel and American Jews. New York, of course, has the largest Jewish population of any city outside of Israel, and the majority are concentrated right here in Brooklyn. The feelings of American Jews toward Israel have become as complicated and polarized as American politics themselves in recent decades. According to Northeastern University professor Dove Waxman, many have become disillusioned as Israel has become, quote, more right-wing, more religious, more intolerant, more unequal, and more aggressive and expansionist than the Israel that American Jews had fallen in love with. What to do with this changing reality? And why do the opinions of this population matter? We hope to explore some of these questions and others in this series of conversations. And we begin with an American Jew born in Israel, a poet, educator, activist, and Brooklynite, who has his own complicated relationship with the Jewish state. Welcome, Tom Haviv, to 112BK. Welcome so much, Tom. Thank you so much. Tom, tell us a little bit about your background and your connection to Israel. Okay. Um, I was born in Israel. Uh, I was born to an American mother and a, an Israeli father. Um, I was born in Tel Aviv. And I, I always felt close, primarily because my father and my grandparents were pretty intimately involved with the IDF. IDF is the Israeli Defense Forces, exactly. right? Mm -hmm. And also the Israeli government at varying degrees. So my father was a career fighter pilot mm -hmm. for 20 years. And so my, my childhood bedroom had photos of F-16s, right. which is pretty intense. And that just seemed to be like, oh, this is what cool dads do. Right. And so the other kind of like complicated shading to that is that even though my grandparents were part of the state, and I think a lot of people who have leftist views see the state in kind of like sort of a monolithic way, maybe right. the failures are extreme and clear, my grandparents identified as leftists as well. Mm. And so their vision for what Israel would be was always communicated to me as something that was sort of out of sync with what it was. Mm -hmm. They also imagined an egalitarian state and society that they didn't see right. happening. So I had this kind of mixed kind of pride of like, oh, we created this thing for a purpose, and also this feeling like... We're it's not th quite getting we, there. Or we didn't. Or we didn't get there. And, or, or we didn't. Yeah. So... Wow. And at what point did you begin to question your relationship with Israel? I grew up in New York City. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up in the Bronx. And I grew up in a community that was very Jewish, mm -hmm. but also very American. Right. And I think that kind of what you were saying in your intro is that there are, there's a whole set of stories mm -hmm. and projections and cultures that have been cultivated in America uh, that kind of respond to Israel as this promise, this beautiful place. Um, and much of that is, is true in many respects. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I was in this context as someone who had a, an immigrant father. Right. And, I, and I identify in that way. And there was this, always this kind of friction of being among, just to say it simply, uh, a predominantly European Jewish community, mm -hmm. uh, describing what is and kind of articulating themselves in relation to a Middle Eastern oh, society yeah. and culture. Uh, 
that they their family didn't come from. And so right. my dad's family came from Turkey, and so they there's a long history of Jews in countries like Turkey and in Arabic-speaking countries and in mm -hmm. Iran and elsewhere where they lived and coexisted, quote-unquote, with, with Muslims and Christians for hundreds and thousands of years. Right. So I had this kind of like, you know, my, my last name is Arabic, so I had this like, uh, something is off in the story, and why right. do Americans care so much? Yes. Anyways, that didn't really kind of blossom until, you know, basically, you, my experience of change is always intimate. Mm -hmm. you, when you meet people, you meet... Yes. You meet somebody... You have those conversations. You have the conversations. And they give you a different understanding of what you thought you knew, especially when they're coming from a perspective that you don't actually inhabit. Can you tell Precisely. me... Where would you put yourself along the spectrum of sentiments toward Israel? Mm. You know, because there are people who, you know, oh, no, Israel, like, is doing everything wrong. There are people, Israel's doing everything correctly. You know what totally. I mean? Like, I strongly identify as somebody who has um, leftist roots, mm -hmm. whatever that means, and that means different things in an Israeli context than it would in an American context. And my grandparents were socialists. And they were Zionists. Mm -hmm. My family here, there is no, there was no socialism, etc. There's, so it's right. complicated. So no, no matter what, I'm on that side of the story. And the work that I've done with groups like If Not Now and local groups like JFRJ, which I can, whatever we can yeah. expand. These are important kind of activist Jewish communities. What is JFRJ? JFRJ is a local organizing group. They do solidarity work with a whole range of issues. They work with, you know, they do solidarity with BLM. They do things for immigration, uh, anti-Islamophobia, anti-Arab racism work. Uh, they show up in New York. And If Not Now is an organization that's a kind of has, they made this brilliant strategic move that I was going to say brought me into the fold of mm -hmm. Jewish activ activism in, after the, in 2004, after the siege of Gaza, right. by telling American Jews essentially that they can do something and that they should and that their implicatedness is not abstract. Right. And so their agenda is to shift American institutional support of the Israeli occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. Mm -hmm. So I'm very much enmeshed in those worlds. But also, I feel like there are major limitations mm -hmm. in those spaces, um, not specifically those organizations, but just in the kind of framing that we have for how we get out of this yes. and how we move forward. And so I would right. say, of course, I'm, I'm very far from a right right wing full annexation of Palestine Palestinians don't have the right to their state they're not a real people that just mm -hmm. I don't even know I didn't know people like that right that so that's I could talk about that it's not really kind of my organizing space also probably I don't have the personality for it maybe I just can't go to, you know yeah. talk to those people maybe those people don't want to talk to me do you feel like you're having some internal struggle mm. in reaction to this work that is, in fact, very external mm. and is about putting yourself out into the world mm. and changing things, mm. not just for yourself, but for everybody. Yeah. Yes. And also, di differently from a lot of people who express, like, oh, my parents, were, they're super Zionist or they're super religious and I can't even have this conversation or, like, the dinner mm -hmm. conversation is explosive or something like that. I don't actually have that. Right. I have a beautiful relationship with my father. He's like yes. my closest friend, uh, and we and we've grown together, and we've moved towards each other. And that's interesting and, to me because of I know you said you want to demilitarize Judaism, right? And your dad, yeah. you know, is an IDF guy. Totally, we could talk about that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, what was I going to say? I do think that there's a little bit of an internal conflict, and I think mm -hmm. the conflict is about. Um, how do you, and this is sort of my general co conflict I have with a lot of po 
political spaces is how do you make a movement actionable? How do you make it instrumental? How do you make it leverage change? How do you make it move lots of people without losing the deep complexity of the issue? Right. And that doesn't mean talking about it ad nauseum. Right. It means really not balking at the things that are hard to talk about. And so one of those things, as I said before, is I, I, I have these criticisms of the left. And I think the criticisms, engaging with those criticisms, is just is hard for that space as well. Right. So one of those things that I think is obvious is I think the left has, if you talk about BDS, mm -hmm. which I think is part of a, like a whole kind of ecosystem of tactics and kind of her movement ecology of like. Can you say what BDS is really quickly? Boycott, divestment, and sanctions. Mm -hmm. um, and there's just this kind of uh, party line leftism that doesn't describe and articulate what will be. Mm. And that, and to do that, that takes an enormous amount of cultural work and organizing and thinking and complex thinking that even leftist move, movement spaces cannot mm. and have not taken on. And so yeah. that's really where my work has sort of come from. And I think that, yeah, as I said before, the seed of that comes from my identity as having family of Middle Eastern Jews right. who don't really fit into this story. And we're also intentionally kind of out, written out of the Israeli narrative for so long, or, you know, talked or seen as, you know, in Theodor Herzl, the guy who started Zionism, more or less, you know, colonialism was a noble cause for him. There's no, like, there's nothing uh, controversial about co calling Israel a colonial project. He called it that. He said we would go to this land and we'd colonize Eastern people, mm -hmm. some of whom are Jews, and we'll make their—we'll civilize them. Right. We'll, Will civilize them. Mm -hmm. So that's so much a part of that alienation of who was there is part of the dissociation of the Israeli state. Right. So one thing is how do we reconnect with those people? That's one thing mm -hmm. that the left has not been able to do. The left has more or less a, a Eurocentrism problem, where from other angles people would say a whiteness problem. How do we integrate that into the conversation about Jewish organizing? And I think the other thing is if we talk about the occupation, mm -hmm. People are like, okay, of course, this is, this is not just, this is not sustainable, These, there are war crimes, there are horrific acts daily. Right. What will be? Mm -hmm. What will happen after we end the occupation? Right. And there's fear around that, because so many things can happen. Yeah. I think horrible things can happen. I think beautiful things can happen. But if we don't have this kind of collective conversation across communities, but I also think very importantly, deeply coming from these Jewish identities, mm -hmm. and of course Jew Jewishness is not monolithic, right. we're coming from so many different angles. If we're not having this conversation together about what will be after we succeed, then we won't succeed mm -hmm. because we don't have a vision. And so I, I have a friend who kind of says, like, you know, he talks about BDS and, you know, is a supporter. And then his kind of uh, the caveat he gives is more or less, these are tactics. What is our deep strategy? Right. What's the, I always think of it as like, you know, there are people who are really good at dismantling and tearing things down and criticizing, but we also need people who are really good at rebuilding and exactly. creating infrastructure exactly. and creating strategies. So, you know, I see how you need both of those on, in, in these conversations if you want to move things forward. Yeah. Now, another part of your life, apart from the activism, is art. You are a poet, and you have a book of poetry called Flag of No Nation. Yeah. Does it deal with some of these themes as well? Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say that primarily I have, 
I've entered movement spaces as an artist yes. and have kind of seen that as my resource. Mm -hmm. What can I do, what can I bring with kind of my own creative thinking and mm -hmm. my own kind of investigations that I that have their own freedom in art spaces and art, you know, in that kind of frame. Okay. And so, yeah, uh, Flag of No Nation is partially about the future mm -hmm. and partially about the past. And it's okay. sort of something about how, um, how do we recuperate, rescue what was lost from the past that has mm -hmm. clues about what will be. Mm. And so, again, part of this is my, my family. Where were they and many, many other Jews and Muslims and people living in Palestine? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, where were they hundreds of years ago? Right. What were they doing? And what does that mean about what we're going to be doing and what our children are going to be doing exactly. in the future? I love that. I hope that you get a lot of great response and feedback to this book of poetry. I, I hope so, too. I, I hope, hope so. I really, really do. Cause it thank you. Amazing. Yeah, I hope so, too. I, I, it's been something that's growing and stirring in me for a long time, and it's something that I've brought into all these spaces, and it's one of the reasons why I've stayed in them, mm -hmm. because there's so much growth that will happen in that conversation. Now, we brushed on this a little bit earlier, talking about the demilitarization of Judaism. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more for me? Sure, yes. I, I think this goes, again, back into political imagination and not just political action. I think that there is—so what I, what I was writing about was more or less something in the, in the family of the idea of not in our name, mm -hmm. which is sort of a slogan that's been bandied around for— I think decades for Jews right. being like, this is terrible, it's not what we were stand for, and yet things stand, mm -hmm. and they stay the same. So I, I think that there's just been this—I've seen uh, and read about sort of scenes of people who have just—I mean, we're talking about anti-Semitism, we're also talking about the deprivation of Palestinian communities in Gaza and the West Bank, where mm -hmm. there—I had a friend living in Ramallah who saw a child point to a soldier and say—and refer to them as Jews, and mm -hmm. then that kind of— uh, illusion, illusion? The, that, that kind of conflation of mm -hmm. a Jew as a soldier is, a tr is also, it's so sad. It's yeah. not to say that it gives us a moral high ground, us as Jews, but I'm kind of using that in quotes, right. um, but it's to say what has, what has this kind of uh, assumption of the inevitability of military rule and violence done to our, our aspirations? Mm -hmm. And when can we decouple our self-determination as Jews from violence, mm. because, as you said, you, where does identity come into this? Of course, it's maybe unpopular in some some space to say Jews, of course, like anybody else, like any human being, any group, they were, they deserve self determination, right. especially given history. Mm -hmm. My my provocation, perhaps poetic, perhaps utopian, was how can we rethink Jewish self determination so that it doesn't uh, preclude the self determination of another. People, right? And I think part of that is reassessing our assumption that war is natural, right? And that it's part of what it means to be in control and powerful right. and to have dignity. And maybe it's part of some trauma narrative mm -hmm. that's happening in many communities that we've held on to this. Right. Maybe it's expediency. So I was thinking again, like, where will we go? Mm -hmm. I don't say that, you know, everyone has to—I'm not saying what will happen tomorrow. Where right. will we go? So that was my opening of a conversation of how do we imagine war? And also, mm -hmm. why have we talked—talking about—why is there no anti-war mo movement in America? Right. Why have we lost that vocabulary? Have we just assumed— That it's like— 
the that, thing that's going to happen no matter what we do or what we believe. Sometimes I think that that is what people have started to believe. And you're right, there is a, a lack of imagination um, in that belief. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Was there something else? Well, I just want, I did want to say that part of the, the, the flag of No Nation book project, which is also nonfiction, um, and it also has to do with this kind of poetic political imagination around this flag that I designed mm -hmm. um, called the Khamsa flag, which is a flag that I think comes out of uh, my family's experience in the Mediterranean and the Middle East and thinking mm -hmm. about if these two narratives, Israeli-Jewish narrative and the Palestinian, I mean, not to call them monolithic, it's to, mm -hmm. just to simplify it for a second, if they're completely dissociated from each other, mutually exclusive, there, there needs to be a way to, to at least be with outside of that binary mm -hmm. to create something else. Maybe those those two standpoints will always be valid and always be players. Right. So the Khamsa flag is a shared Muslim and Jewish and Christian symbol and a symbol of the Middle East and a, uh, a ward against the evil eye. Wow. Um, is an idea of maybe a different kind of collectivity that can form maybe even beyond nation states. More political imagination. Yeah. I like that. That's, yeah, that's, that's it. We do have to end here. Sure. This has been amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't wait yeah. to read this book. Thank you. For the next three and a half weeks, Muslims here and abroad will be celebrating Ramadan, a time for all members of the faith to come together. But these are particularly fraught times for Muslims in America. Do I need to explain why? And there's an extra element of isolation among LGBTQ Muslims because of the traditional intolerance in the religion towards queer lifestyles. Though it's lessened somewhat in recent years, homophobia still causes many to feel left out at this time of year. To talk more about this, we're joined by Mirna Haidar, steering committee member for the Muslim Alliance for Sexual and Gender Diversity. Welcome, Mirna, to 112 BK. Thank you. So, first of all, uh, how do I say this? I want to make sure I do it right. Ramadan Kareem to you. Thank you. Secondly, can you tell for the audience members who are not familiar with Ramadan, just a quick primer on what it is, what it means, what you do? Yeah, of course. Uh, Ramadan is the ninth month of the Islamic calendar uh, where we're meant to fast uh, from sunrise to sundown, um, sun, you know, sunset. Um, and you're meant to really do a lot of reflection during that time. And you fast from water um, and food and anything really that's harmful. Um, and then you're meant to break fast with a humble um, you know, meal and dates and water. Um, so it's really times of reflection. And you're meant to share meals as, as much as you can with other people, no matter if they're fasting or wow. not. What's it like for a queer Muslim celebrating Ramadan? Uh, queer Muslim celebrating Ramadan is really um, beautiful when you have other fellows who you could be who you are in both of these identities at once. And a little caveat to that is that homophobia is not just in a Muslim you know, oh, community. Oh, absolutely not. And it's just something that we constantly hear. And mm -hmm. it's like uh, makes us feel that we're further, um, let's say, um, tokenized or okay. exiled. Um, and so it's like, yes, we have our own struggles within our own community, but also these are shared communities with other religious um, uh, sects. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's one of those things people try to make um, certain religions sound more primitive. Yes. 
And so it's like, well, they have extra problems with this. And it's like, no, we all got problems with this. Exactly. You know, ours might be specifically different, but that doesn't mean that they are run deeper in the roots of our culture or our history than yes. they do yours. Absolutely. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your work? Yes, so it's a bit of a complicated background. Feel free mm -hmm. to cut me off. I came to America about seven years ago, mm -hmm. eight years ago actually now. I came from Lebanon. I grew up in Ivory Coast. Mm -hmm. um, so I came here, I applied for asylum. I'm a refugee in the United States. Then I um, finished undergrad, continued, uh, did law school. I'm doing law school right now. I'm a mother of twins. Um, and so I'm this queer Muslim mama of twins and uh, in, law, in law school. I love that. So. I love that so much. And how do you see anti-gay sentiment um, changing in your, like, in your culture specifically? Because I know I see yeah. it in mine with Black Baptists. Okay, you <laughs> yeah. are seeing some real difference yeah. over the past few years. Even you know, I, with my mother, yeah. there's a huge difference. Yeah. Are you seeing some of that shift as well? Um, the shift is really hard to measure. Um, you know, especially that a lot of conflation happen even from within. For example, mm -hmm. I'm Arab and I'm Muslim, and mm. and so like when you're trying to measure that within the mainstream Muslim community or mainstream Arab community, you're kind of stuck in this, like, well, where did it change, really? Because right. these things kind of mesh um, and, like, blend in. But the, the unfortunate thing is that, yes, we have a lot more allies, mm -hmm. but these allies are not comfortable to be public about right. it. And this is something I constantly push for and, and um, tell them that, you know, if you are an ally, you're not doing enough by just being an ally right. behind closed doors. Right. Um, so that's something that we still need to work on. Uh, so yes, there's progress, but we still have way, 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 you know, to go. You know, this is something that I wonder about because um, I'm a big believer in just because I don't see it doesn't mean it's not happening. Mm -hmm. um, so I wonder, is there anti-Muslim sentiment within the gay community? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, and that takes me back to when I first arrived in, to America and I wanted to find home. Um, so they they told me to you know connect to um, an Arab American community, and I went there and I didn't feel connected because Arab Americans are a bit different from Arabs. Right. And so they sent me to a gay community, mm -hmm. uh, general gay community, and um, I brought up that uh, it's important for me my Muslim heritage, mm -hmm. and I was made fun of. Um, in within that you know it's a very famous LGBTQ uh, organization, yeah. um, and I was really shook by that uh, because. You know, I came here applying for asylum thinking it will be better, uh, but really I was faced with a lot of assumptions and a lot of judgment mm -hmm. uh, from mainstream gay communities. And post-Orlando, at Stonewall, um, someone shouted when I was giving a speech and they said, Muslims are the problem, kill them all. While you were While giving, a giving a speech at Stonewall. Stonewall post-Orlando. And that was, I'm definitely sure, you know, because it was like, you know, the gay community have rallied up, etc. Right. And I'm making an assumption about that person, but I'm pretty sure that person was also gay. Um, yeah. And my friend wears the hijab, and she is LGBTQ and was at the center yesterday, at the LGBTQ center yesterday. And uh, a gay, young, 17-year-old screamed at her saying, do you have a bomb under your shirt? What does that do to the psyche, I wonder. Mm. Like, to feel... Maya Angelou has this great quote, that true belonging comes from belonging to yourself first, belonging nowhere 
and also everywhere mm -hmm. because you belong to yourself. Mm -hmm. So I know how important it is to belong to yourself, but I also know how important it is to have community mm -hmm. that you feel like you can truly, truly connect yes. to. How long did it take you to find something like that here? Um, it took a while. It took a while because you know you would find things like I have mentioned, like either you can be either queer or mm -hmm. Muslim, and within these spaces you couldn't be fully who you are. Right. And then I found what is today the Muslim Alliance for Sexual and Gender Diversity, mm -hmm. um, and then really I started seeing that you know this black queer Muslim person, uh, woman actually she identifies as a woman, gave the adhan, the call of prayer, mm -hmm. and I just like found myself crying because I didn't think this was possible. Wow. Um, and I really, f this is where I started feeling at home here. Mm -hmm. As soon as I heard that and I started being part of this community, that's where I am home. And my kids are now raised by this community. And, you know, it's nothing that makes me happier. I can't imagine. Yeah. Do you have thoughts on how we heal some of those rifts? Because, I, I, you know, I think about someone like you coming here. Mm -hmm. And my first thought is there are people who would have embraced you wholeheartedly. There are people who would have been mm -hmm. like, oh, you belong here. Mm -hmm. But how do we make the connection to someone new coming in to connect them with that community, with the community that really, you know, knows yeah. what they're going through yeah. and can help them through the process? Um, if I understood your question correctly, I've mm -hmm. done a lot of work with teachers mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, we would workshop the teachers on how to be able to approach or support queer Muslims. Mm -hmm. And usually the best answer is to find another queer Muslim or right. a collective of queer Muslims. And we have pockets all over the United States in the most random, you know, states. Right. Um, and so I feel this is really the healing and like during Ramadan, for example, breaking fast together within a specific space that is specifically queer Muslim, where people could have intellectual discussions, religious mm -hmm. discussions, or really we have something called confession of Ramadan confessions, mm -hmm. where we confess our like, you know, jokes or like some things that we usually consider as sin, but we as in right. like we legitimize them amongst ourselves. And these are little like bits and pieces of, of healing circles, I feel. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, feeling at home, I feel working on these things should lay on the allies, not on us. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So like often it's put on our shoulders to do this work. Yes, we are meant to like, create our own spaces, mm -hmm. but allies should do a better job at like supporting us um, and visibilizing us. I love that because yeah. it, it definitely makes me think about, you know, someone not too long ago, I can't remember exactly who said, there's a difference between ally and accomplice. And allies are people who support you behind closed doors. Accomplices are the people who support you by standing beside you. Yes. So, you know, I hope that there will be more accomplices for people of, you know, different gender identities and different sexual orientations and thank racial you. and ethnic backgrounds. I love it. And I thank you so much for coming on the show and of talking course. to me about this today. That's the show for today. Tomorrow we'll be off while our team gets ready for our town hall on the war on drugs. But we're back on Thursday with our 100th episode, featuring a Brooklyn man who was exonerated last week for a murder he was convicted of when he was 14. I hope you can join us. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. Also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, 
Tyrese Hester, Kritzi Roberts, Emily Bogosian, and Sarah Grachowski. It is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. It is recorded by Eric Hagasek and Antonio M. Rosario. Our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. And our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.